morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith, Faith Christian Fellowship. If you're, if you're a first-timer, we, we greet you in the name of Christ, and we're in the, a sermon series on the, the Old Testament prophet Micah, the book of Micah. Um, there's seven chapters, and we're in chapter six now. Our, the theme of this series is, is Micah, Justice and Mercy. Just to give you a, a chart, I have this chart that occasionally put up here that's an overview of the book so you see where we are. Because I want you to see that there's a flow, there's a back and forth of, of, of justice and, and judgment and some hard things that judgment is coming. And then it comes to some hope. The fact that, that, that despite the fact that we're sinners, there's hope coming. And there's a, there's a flow back and forth in this book. We're now in chapter 6. And then we, last, last time we talked about the first part of this chapter, which is, and we're going to look at the second half of this chapter today. Okay, so we're going to, let's read, read, and you can stand as we read uh, Micah 6. Today I'm going to read one, I'm going to read verse 8 to 16, 8 to the end of the chapter, Micah chapter 6, ESV translation, God's word. <clears throat> He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. God's word. You may be seated. My title is a phrase I used last week, simply the Micah Mandate, the Micah Mandate. You know, we, we, we wrongly believe that, that we can create a better world, a society where humans can flourish by passing laws and enforcing people to righteousness, to do righteousness and to do justice. But that doesn't work. Passing laws to try to force people to do things doesn't work. You know, what, what, I, what I hope to, us to understand today is that the disciples of Jesus, true disciples of Jesus, are those who embrace the Micah mandate. And it's the, it's the only thing that can change our world. Changing the world isn't just the external. It begins with people on the internal, with hearts that understand what God wants this world to be like. And that's the Micah mandate. Um, we're going to focus on verse 8 some more. We, talk, we began talking about verse 8 last week, and then we'll, at the end we'll move on to see the rest of what this passage has to say. But this Micah mandate is simply the, the calling to do justice, to, walk, to, to, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Three things today. We, we, this mandate is not, it's not an, aspect of salva- uh, an essential aspect of salvation. It's not an essential aspect of what it means to be saved. We'll talk about that what it means to become a Christian. The second thing is, it is an essential aspect of what it is to be a Christian, of discipleship. It is, it's essential. It's an essential aspect. I want us to understand that distinction. 
And thirdly, as we look at this passage, th this, this Micah mandate calls us to consider economic realities in our world. It does. And we'll see that in the passage. First, the Micah mandate is not an essential element of our salvation, which is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we looked at this first part, the first eight verses, and uh, the context was this domestic court context that we looked at last week. The sacred marriage analogy that Micah talked about, exposing uh, Israel's idolatry and their adultery, their spiritual adultery, and, and the thinking that, they're, they're, that there were spectacular things they could do to get right with God. And we said, no, it's not the spectacular, it was the simple. This God said, I want you to simply do justice and love mercy and walk with me in a humble way. That's the Micah mandate, the, the simple but difficult mandate that God gives us. And we, we said that it's not like a, those three things are not sequential. Well, you do this, and then you do that, and you do that. It's kind of all together. I call it a stir-fry. You know, there's like, you know, I find food analogies for everything, you know. <laughs> it's a, a stir-fry. It's all together. These three things are all together that God is calling us to be as his people. It's kind of a stir-fry. Christians should not be known, uh, excuse me, Christians should be known as people who embrace the cross and embrace the resurrection, but we should be known as more than that. We should be known as people who review the cross and review the resurrection and confess our sins and celebrate the forgiveness of sins in our lives. But we should be more than that. We should be those also who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. It's not, all, it's not one or two. It's all three together. It's all three things together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, um, Christianity without repentance is the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. We're talking about what real repentance is all about, and yet making it repentance not works. <clears throat> Our world is broken. Our world is broken. Um, a few weeks ago, I think when I began this series, I said I was going to come back to something that, that happened uh, the, about last fall. Uh, last fall, Dr. John MacArthur and a dozen other Christian leaders um, launched a website presenting the statement on social justice and the gospel. And in that statement, the, the, those who signed it claimed that the social justice movement endangers Christians with an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel and misrepresent scripture and lead people away from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. When I heard about it, I said, wow, that sounds dramatic. That sounds, that sounds bold to, to make that kind of a state, the kind of statements that I thought were there. I first heard about it from someone who didn't agree with it. So then I said, let me read it for myself. But I read it for myself, and I said... Mm, there's a lot here that I like. And then I said, can I sign it? So then I read it again and said, mm, not sure I can sign it. So I'm, gonna, I'm thinking I'm going to put together a, a, a document on this uh, very briefly, but I'm going to give you some of my thoughts, what I, just some of my five concerns about this very helpful document, okay? Here's five concerns I have about it. Some of you have heard about it, you know about it, you've read it, and you're, and you're, you're grappling with these issues about social justice and the gospel. Here's my five concerns about a very good document in some ways. Uh, the first concern is, is the, the warning of Galatians about the, the, gospel, the, the gospel must be heeded. The, the gospel of the kingdom of God and the gospel of justification is one gospel, okay? The New Testament brings both those aspects of the gospel to us, and the document seems to limit the gospel to just the justification part of gospel, that we're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. 
But not an understanding of the kingdom of God as, as part of Christ being king and, and what the implications of that are. That's a weakness of the doctrine. However, th- those who reduce saving faith to mere mental descent, <laughs> nodding to the facts, they ignore the necessity of repentance and, and, and deeds that reflect a repentant heart are also just as a da- as danger of confusing the gospel. The second problem I have is the document needs a, a much greater appreciation for the insights from outside of historical, classical, evangelical theologians. Well, what do I mean by that? There's certain, there's certain writers that we listen to when we read, and they have great insights. There are other writers that, that, that we, we need to listen to as well. And there's a narrowness of appreciation for some of the insights from others. The third thing is um, the document, I believe, needs more self-reflection. This is one of the strongest things that jumped out at me as I read it. The tone of the article leaves one on the defensive. I I wish the writers would confess that, yes, the scripture says this, but the church has fallen short here, 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 here. That tone is lacking. Fourth, uh, the document is is not as weak in in what it states as what it omits. Uh, There's very little stated about, for instance, structural sin. And, and, and the structural sin, that, that, that not just individual sin, but, but individuals together who create structures can sin. Very weak in that, almost non-existent. And I think that's, one of, again, one of the weaknesses of the document. And the last thing is the document, document's authors could easily, uh, easily be accused of thinking of, of the normativeness of Western culture and not embracing um, the insights from other cultures. Now that, that's something I, I wouldn't, I, I, I would say that gently, but I think as I read, reread it, I see that. There's a narrowness of understanding of some of the cultural issues that I think should have been in that document. So what am I saying? What am I saying? Uh, and I, maybe this will get you to read it because it's a great document in a lot of ways. The social justice and gospel is a very important caution to the church. It's a church that's moving into some good things of applying the Micah mandate of doing justice and loving mercy and walking with God. But we need clarity on the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. More than anything in the world, people need to know how to be saved. Let me say that again. (laughs) More than anything in the world, people need to know how to be saved. And that is good. One of the good things about the document, they say, the document say that needs to be clear. We need to make it clear that going, doing good works does not save a person, that faith in Christ does. We need to distinguish between the root and the fruit of a life that's committed to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, and I saw an article about the document, and they quoted a guy named John Calvin. I said, hey, Calvin, I've heard of him. <laughs> he said this, we dream neither of a faith devoid of good works nor of a justification that stands without them. Do you wish then to attain righteousness in Christ? You must first possess Christ. But you cannot possess him without being made a partaker in his sanctification. He's growing in holiness. Because he cannot be divided into pieces. John Calvin. To to quote John MacArthur, who was one of the ones who initiated this, <laughs> using his own words against him, and I like John MacArthur, <laughs> Jesus must be Savior and Lord. Simple as that. 
So the, the Micah mandate is not an essential element of our salvation, of coming to Christ. But the second thing I want you to see, it is an essential aspect of our discipleship, of what it means to follow Christ. It is. One of the things that, 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 that Pastor Craig put together years ago that has kind of endured our church is the, is the R's. You know, you all, you've, seen, you've probably seen that many times, the cross with the R's. You see the, the, the axis there, the axis there, the, the horizontal and the vertical. <coughs> Rejoicing and relying, reaching, restoring, reconciling, and renewing. The six R's. And you, you, many have seen that, but they say, what? That, that's good stuff, but what is it? You know what it is? You know what, why Craig put that thing together? It's really great. It's because that's what a disciple ought to be, look, ought to look like. Those are the things that the, if you break down the life of a disciple, that, those are the elements that, sh that should flow from a disciple's life and therefore from a church's life. There's the upward focus of, of rejoicing in worship and relying on God in prayer. There's the inward focus of, of having your heart renewed and, and, and being reconciled there's the, the, to, to, to one another. And then there's the outward focus of reaching out into the world and restoring justice to the broken world around us. So th those are, we call those the faith values. If you've been to the, the, the membership class, you've seen that. You know that. You, you, you've, you've embraced that as part of our mission and vision. See, the Michael mandate is not a salvation verse. It's a discipleship verse. And we, we heard some verses from the book of James in the scripture reading. James <laughs> is over and over again, James reminds us of this. There's some, some verses, verses from uh, the book of James, uh, some of them. Um, James chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. For like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's talking about the lowly and the rich. The lowly and the rich. James does that. We heard the passage from chapter 1 that went into chapter 2 about, 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 about faith without works being dead. But that passage begins in, in, in chapter 1. We talks about what true faith is. What, tr what is true religion? It, it, it's not just to keep yourself unstained in your heart. But to care for orphans and widows, it's, it's, it, there's an there's a internal and an external manifestation of true discipleship, you see. James wants us to understand that. So what, is, what good is it for you if you have a, a, an internal uh, a sanctification in your heart and, and you're seeking to love God, but it doesn't impact your relationships? He says, you don't have the real thing. What you have isn't a lively faith. You have a dead faith. A, li a living faith impacts your relationships. It impacts your life. It impacts your orientation towards the world around us. This is what James is trying to say. And many of you know, if you study church history, that there are many of the reformers who really focus on justification through faith alone. They didn't like James. <laughs> I said, James, what do you mean there? They couldn't get a handle of what James is talking about. James is not saying anything different than what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace are we saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to perform good works. Paul likes good works too. It's not just James likes works and Paul likes faith. They both believe in faith and works. We can say more about that. But then in chapter 5, there's an interesting verse. And when I read these verses in verses James 5 to 1 to 6, I think he's kind of he's just finished having his quiet time in the book of Micah. <laughs> Look at what James says in, in, in chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your, your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist. I mean, that sounds like Old Testament prophet stuff. That's James, the New Testament. The, the, the Micah man, this, 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 this commitment to, to, to living out our faith in practical ways is part of New Testament discipleship. And the mandate, Micah mandate is telling us that. Many of you have, have studied and looked at uh, John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus and his encounter with the woman at the well. Wonderful encounter. You remember Jesus' unusual insistence to the disciples that they journey from Judea to Galilee, from the celebration season in down south in Judea up to Galilee, where most of where they live, where the ministry was. His unusual insistence is that they that that is that they go through Samaria rather than go around to the other side of the Jordan River, which was a normal travel road, travel uh, uh, practice. Even though yes, there was a road that went through straight up from from um, Judea to Galilee. There was a road that went there. But Jews didn't take that road. Why not? Because there are Samaritans around there. You don't want to hang with Samaritans. You don't want to interact with Samaritans. So they would go around the Jordan River to get to Grandma's house, to get to the cousin's house, to go home, whatever it was. You know? Now, I, I've, as I've said before, I kind of I play with that. I, I think it's, it's kind of, in our context, it's kind of like, you know, you, you live in Glen Burnie, and you want to go to Towson, and, 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 and instead of taking 695, Jesus says, let's go up Greenmont Avenue. And you say, why would I want to do that? I mean, it's too many lights. You can't go, you can't go 70 on, on, on Greenmont Avenue. There's no direct route. It's, 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 it's not the easy route. But John 4, 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. What, what, what is that chapter about? That chapter is about Jesus finding a woman who needs to be saved at a well, yes. The chapter is about Jesus who knew that in Samaria there were people who were hungry for the Messiah and the Jews weren't talking to them. There's too many Jonas among the Jews, I don't know. They weren't talking to them, but they had some instincts and desire for God. The woman went and found them. But the main thing in this chapter is that Jesus took his disciples to, 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 to Samaria and stayed outside the well and said, Go get some food. But he didn't send them in there for just food. He said, my food is to do the will of my father. He sent them to interact with the other kind of people. And so they came back with food. A couple sandwiches, I guess. I don't know. But the woman, the sinful woman, she came back with people. People hungry to know the Messiah who was at the well with living water. What's my point? The Micah mandate is so important that, that it is not peripheral. It's essential to what it means to walk with God, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is to 
interact with people that make you uncomfortable. That's what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand. And later, decades later, John, who writes this gospel, tells us a story. Funny that Matthew and Luke and Mark, they said, we don't want to talk about that. (laughs) Too hard. John got it. John got it. He put it in his gospel. Embracing the Micah mandate is the only hope for a society. Hearts must be changed, and the hearts changed begin with us who know Christ knowing that discipleship involves going across borders, making yourself feel uncomfortable sometimes for the sake of Christ. Here's something that's somewhat controversial. Every important biblical principle, uh, it's a very important biblical principle, uh, genuine life-transforming, culture-transforming benevolence, benevolence, it must flow from a deep repentance of those who, who have, towards the have-nots. You, you want to change the world? Change those who have and help them to see the needs of those who have not. But on the contrary, it can't be demanded. It, you can't take from the rich and say, you must be benevolent. Benevolence flows from the heart. Benevolence must flow from the heart. Two, two lessons uh, from the, the civil rights movement that I've learned uh, or, or one. one is that, that to have a, a good movement, what, you must have the right goals. You must have the right goals. It's most important to be on the right side of history and, and what you want to try to accomplish in a, in a movement of justice. Often those who say they want to be on the right side of history don't understand that history is his story. It's God's story. And he has told us what is just and what is good and what is right and what produces righteousness in the world and in our lives. Sadly, m- many who talk about being on the right side of history ignore his perfect word and point to only human reason and human solutions as their source of authority. Scripture paints a picture of how human beings are to live, how we're to treat one another. We must have the right goals. They come from God's word. But it's also important to accomplish the right goals with the right processes. The right means. One of the things that I appreciate about the the civil rights movement of 50, 60 years ago is they understood that it wasn't just having the right goal, you have to do it in the right way. I think it was because it was a movement that was fueled in many ways by the black church of America. But Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, was uh, the leader of that movement, and um, he he was championing legal rights to change laws towards biblical ethic of love. That's what he's doing. The ethic of love, the ethic of sharing, the ethic of even economic cooperation become based upon love, loving for neighbor. He understood the importance of legal change. He was also friends with Dr. Billy Graham. There's some pictures there. There's a picture of them on an airplane. What's the next, the next picture? Um, there's a quote there. Yes. Had it not been for the ministry of my good friend, Dr. Billy Graham, my own work in the civil rights movement would not have been as successful as it had been. They were, they were friends. They were they weren't bosom buddies, but they were friends. They were both Baptist preachers from the, from the South. And they had, I understand, I heard, heard this week that one time Dr. Graham bailed a king out of jail. They had a good relationship. Many, many think that Graham could have done more, but we need to understand that in the early 50s, Billy Graham would go into the deep racist South and say, we are going to have, we're not going to have uh, uh, sec- these lines of barriers between this section and this section. We're going to have a unified uh, 
crusades is what they called them, unified uh, events. Billy Graham got a lot of opposition for doing that. So we need to understand him in his times. He, he, he could have done more. Sure, he could have done more. Billy Graham had one passion in his life, in one sense, to preach the gospel to anybody who would listen. <laughs> and and any, anything that would, would, would put pass, that, that would enhance that objective, he would do. And uh, he's to be commended. And he and, and King felt like they were working together. Uh, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, who loved him and, 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 and because he first loved us, fulfilled the, who fulfilled the mandate to love one another, the mandate to love your neighbor, the mandate to love even your enemy, to love the poor, to love the oppressed, to love people through practical deeds that meet needs and, and with love, loving but tough warnings about judgment to come and a Savior who can make us ready for that judgment, then, then you're beginning to understand what it means to be a disciple. Okay? If you really want to help somebody, point them to Jesus and let Jesus give them a heart <laughs> for, those that, for those who are not like them. One an example, a wonderful, simple example, but a small example, but a very profound example is a small dude named Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. Remember this tax collector, Zacchaeus? That's another depiction of him, whatever. Zacchaeus interact, was up in a sycamore tree, went to Jesus, hang out with Jesus, and in and, and the conversation, he talks about how he gave, he gave fourfold the people that he ripped off. He gave, he, he gave back. And, and Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. Now, did Zacchaeus get saved because he gave back? No. But a saved Zacchaeus said, I got to give back. Discipleship is not, doesn't save you, but a saved person begins to understand his obligations, the Micah mandate. Well, the last thing we want to look at is <clears throat> this mandate clearly demands a consideration of economic realities. Now, why do I say that? Well, here's where we look at the text, finally, okay? Look at me, again, the text, you can't get away from economics and look at this text. You know, it talks about treasures of wickedness, a scant measure, so I quit the man of wicked scales, bag of deceitful weights, the rich man full of violence. Economics is in here. Verses 14 to 15, Bruce Walkie says in this, of these verses, in verse 9 we have the address, and it seems to be addressed to the city. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. Now we've said already in this, in this, in this um, series that uh, Micah seems to be a country prophet. He's not a, slick, a city slicker, so he's pointing a finger at the city. Folk in the, in, in the country, they do that a lot. <laughs> it's those folks in the city, that's the problem. <laughs> well, he has the anointing of God to say that. <laughs> the problems seem to be urban. There's urban problems that he's dealing with. The problems of the city of Jerusalem is what he has in mind. Um, but then in verses 10 to 12, there's accusations. There's accusations against the rich. It's about deceit by the rich. It's about violence by the rich. Now, one of the things that we, as we look at that is, is we need to, to say that, 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 that those are problems with rich people, but it's not a problem with every rich person. Okay? Again, one of the things that we love to do when we talk about politics and economics is, 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 to, is broad statements that accuse every, that, that put people in boxes. Yes, clearly in, in that day, in that time, as Micah is looking at the situation in Jerusalem and the, and the decline of, of, of God's word and, and of God's people, he's saying, looking at the rich, he, he can say pointly, specifically, that the rich 
have gained their riches by, by, by unrighteous ways. He can say that. We cannot say that about every rich person that we see. It's not fair to do that. In fact, I could show you some scriptures where some followers of Jesus were rich. So, let, so I'm trying to bring, bring some balance here because there's such, a, there's such a movement in our world to say that riches are bad. Not true. Not true in the scriptures. Jesus didn't, Paul did not say that money was the root of all evil. He said the love of money was the root of all evil. And yet, Micah and James, as we saw, there's hard words. Because with those who have riches, there's a responsibility. They're held accountable by God. Verses 13 to 15 is kind of the results. He calls, he calls it God's grievous blow that would make them desolate due to their sins. He's pointing again to the fact that God was going to bring judgment upon them as a people. He used the term in, in verse 9, the rod. Many believe that that's pointing to the Assyrians. He's saying the rod was actually going to be ordained by God. It wasn't just the Assyrians. God had brought the Assyrians and the Babylonians to be his instruments of judgment. Seems to predict in verses 14 to 15 an economic crisis. In verse 16, there's a reminder of Omri and Ahab. Now, that's back in 2 Kings. Um, you've probably heard of Jezebel, Ahab. Uh, the house of Omri was that, was that, um, that line. Um, it points to the evil of the leaders that, that are there. The, the leaders there were, were those who led the, 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 the people into that movement. One, well, you could easily argue that the high point, or actually the low point, I guess, of idolatry and spiritual adultery among God's people in the Old Testament was, was the days before Elijah and Elisha that followed. And, and that's the house of Omri. Wicked leaders. Wicked, wicked leaders there. But verse 9 talks about cities. Cities. So, so it, it talks about violence of the rich in cities. And when I, when I, I was reflecting on that this week, I, I thought about the two crazy situations recently in Chicago and Baltimore. In Chicago, you had the actor, uh, Jesse Smollett. He didn't claim to be mugged in Deerfield or Arlington Heights. It was downtown Chicago. Remember that? I thought about the, the Jackie Smith tragedy in Baltimore that happened. She didn't claim that it happened in Harford County or in Aberdeen where she worked. Rather, not she, her family, her husband and, and, and daughter-in-law. Yeah. They, they, they didn't claim it happened. They, happened, they said it happened in the city. Did you catch that? Both incidents profiled a sad reality when you think about it. That there's much violence in our cities. It's so normative that now the city gets blamed for things it didn't, didn't do. Men wearing MAGA caps, yelling slurs, attacking a man. Panhandlers attacking a woman. These stories are crafted because of a perception, real or unreal, that cities are the problem. Cities are the place where all kinds of crazy violence takes place. That's the tragic atmosphere of our day. And, and yes, there is much violence in our cities. There's violence outside the cities. You know the difference between cities and, and, and rural areas? Cities got more people. <laughs> it's got more people. And the more people you got, the more problems you got. That's all. You know, the people out there 
I know better than the people in here in terms of city versus country. You know, the, the TV series The Wire years ago profiled blue collar, the second season profiled blue collar crime. If you, if you watch The Wire, you remember that. The, 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 it wasn't just about urban crime of, of, of young blacks. In the season two, there was some blue collar crime happening at the docks. I love the fact that they did that. They didn't, they didn't just point the finger at, at young African-Americans. They, they, they understood there were some deeper problems. And maybe the, maybe the drugs that were being, being given out at Sandtown came through the docks of Dundalk. Maybe. They understood some of those realities. The solution is Jesus Christ. You know, our, we have a new mayor. <laughs> a new, excuse me, a new uh, police leader, Michael Harrison. He's from New Orleans, by the way. Pastor J.B. said he knows him. He's been on committees with him. He's no stranger to urban violence. He needs our prayers. He needs our encouragement as he comes to try to to deal with um, this city. But the solution is disciples of Christ understanding that the poor need Jesus and the rich need Jesus. One of the things that that changed my life in terms of uh, the issue of justice was... um, was serving with InterVarsity for years. But one of the things that happened with InterVarsity before, this is when I was in high school, I didn't know a thing. I would have known what InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was from, from The Man on the Moon, was, was, was in 1970 at the Urbana Missions Conference um, when InterVarsity as a movement was changing. And there was a man there named Tom Skinner. Anybody heard of Tom Skinner? Some of you have heard of Tom Skinner Wonderful preacher, saved, saved out of gangs of Harlem. And he was asked after a very uh, volatile uh, Urbana 67, we want a black man up there who can talk about some of the issues that concern black people. Talk to the university movement. And I believe what he said there changed not just university, it changed American evangelicalism to begin to take seriously justice. I want to read some of what Tom Skinner said that, that at Urbana. 1970. It was during this period that my own parents found their way from Greenville, South Carolina, to the city of New York where I was born and raised. I was born in a little community called Harlem, which is typical of most black communities throughout America. Harlem is a small two and one half square mile area with a, with a population of almost one million people. The social scientists tell you that if you took the entire population of the United States all 200 million Americans, and you force every American citizen to live somewhere in New York, New York still would not get as congested as Harlem is right now. Very congested, packed place. It was in that community that I was born and raised in a fairly religious home, religious to the extent that my old man is a preacher. <laughs> Goes on to talk about that. Thousands of people lived in our rat-infested, run-down, dilapidated apartments where the landlords never came around to provide services. It was not uncommon for some mother to wake up in the middle of the night and send a piercing scream through the community as she discovered her two-week-old baby had been gnawed to death by a vicious rat. You can set your watches by the police who drove into the neighborhood to collect their bribes to keep the racketeering going on. Now, during this great upsurge in revolution and rebellion, this is the late 60s, that's been going on, there have been great numbers of evangelical Christians who have joined the hoot and cry for law and order. But how do you explain law and order to a mother who stands at the foot of her bed watching her baby line up blood, a bloodbath? 
when she knows that that baby would never have been bitten by a rat in the first place, and the rat would never have been in the building if the landlord to whom she had been paying high rent had been providing the kind of service she deserved for the kind of rent she was paying. How do you explain law and order to her when she knows the building code inspector who represents the city administration, who's supposed to check out violations in buildings, came by that building the day before, but was met at the front door by the landlord who palmed $100 in his hand, and the building code inspector kept going. Now, that's lawlessness. But the point is, we never arrest the landlord. We never lock up the building code inspector. But I tell you who we do lock up. We lock up the frustrated, bitter 16-year-old brother of that two-week-old sister who in his bitterness takes to the streets and throws a brick at that building code inspector. Then we lock him up and say, we got to have law and order. Skinner says, make no bones about it. The difficulty in coming to grips with the evangelical message of Jesus Christ in the black community is the fact that most evangelicals in this country who say that Christ is the answer will also go back to their suburban communities and vote for law and order candidates who will keep the system the way it is. So, if you're black and you live in the black community, you soon begin to learn that what they mean by law and order is all the order for us and all the law for them. You soon learn that the police in the black community become nothing more than the occupational force present in the black community for the purpose of maintaining the interests of white society. He said that in a verse, Steve. And he made some noise. <laughs> but it changed in a rushing, and it changed, I believe, the Christian church in America, the evangelical church in America, to begin to understand that, these, that, 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 that doing justice is central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It changed the church for the last 50 years, I believe. I believe that what Skinner did was he translated Dr. King's message of, uh, one, one, uh, uh, that, that secular and religious liberals understood. He translated it for the evangelical world, and they understood it. They began to get it. They began to embrace, eventually, even Dr. King, who gave that message. Look, you... One need not be a member of the clergy to take this Micah mandate seriously. We don't have time to look at it, but the, just the, the, the one, one person who was not a clergy, he was just a layperson, uh, who, who understood this was Wilberforce of Great Britain, who for years and years and years um, tried to lobby the legislature for the abolition of the slave trade. And eventually, after many decades, it happened. He wasn't a preacher. He was, just a, he, was a, he was one who came to Christ one Easter and said, this slave trade isn't right. And he used his calling, his, his political calling, his secular calling, quote unquote, to make a difference. He understood the micro mandate. Well, we're, we're, time, time is long over. I, I know that some of you are in the trenches doing some of this stuff. I don't want to act like we're not. Some of you are already serving the poor in many ways, dealing with uh, the educational system and and, and, and the housing system, looking for equality and equity there. The medical services, you're trying to make a difference there. We understand that. Uh, protecting the poor and the rich by working for the defense of this nation. Some of you are in the defense industry, I know that. Working to protect the life of the unborn and the newly born babes. Helping mothers who are in crisis. Trying to make life-changing decisions. Lobbying against physician-assisted suicide. That's a hot item right now in our state. Working with youth. 
seeking to disciple children, young people, kids from intact families and from families where there's great brokenness and pain into one unified youth ministry. We're, we're, our church is trying to, to do what we can do, but let's keep it on, keep on doing it. Let's keep on seeking to, to, to do the mandate, to walk with God, a walk that leads us to do justice and to do it with hearts of mercy. Let's let the Lord direct our paths, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Let's walk, walk humbly with him that we can make a difference because we give this simple good news about Jesus to those who can make a difference. Let's pray. Lord, Micah comes to us with a, a strong word, and I pray we would continually heed that word. Help us to, to, get, to, to, to not think that it's by doing justice and doing acts of mercy to people that that gains favor with you because it doesn't. But because we, you have loved us and we know your salvation and, and we're resting in it, because of that, help us to be change agents in a broken world, offering bread to others who are hungry, offering water to those who are thirsty. Lord, use this message in our own hearts this week as we reflect upon it and help us to, uh, to be transformed people in Jesus' name.